0: Welcome to Expert Insights. This session was recorded in front of a live webinar audience on the 15th of February, 2023. The topic was, Reconceptualizing Approaches to Men's Mental Health and Suicidality. On the panel we had Dr. Zach Seidler, a Senior Research Fellow at Origin, the Director of Mental Health Training at Movember, and an Honorary Research Fellow at Black Dog Institute. Dr. Anna Richardello, a clinical psychologist, and also Chris, our lived experience representative. Chairing the session is Dr. Sarah Barker.
1: Welcome to Reconceptualizing Approaches to Men's Mental Health and Suicidality today for our expert insights session. I'm Sarah Barker so I'd like to begin with an acknowledgement of country. So Black Dog Institute would like to acknowledge Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples as Australia's first people and traditional custodians. I would particularly like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land where um, I am today and that's the Wurundjeri people I'm in Nam or Melbourne and I extend that respect to the traditional owners of all the lands from where we're gathering today. We value their cultures, identities and continuing connection to country, waters, kin and community and we pay our respects to elders past and present and we're committed to making a positive contribution to the mental health and well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across Australia. So to begin, I'd love to uh, introduce our panel. So we have Zach Seidler, Anna Riccadello and Chris as our lived experience representative. Zach, can I ask you to introduce yourself, please?
2: That list is far too long. I should have <laughs> cut that down. Apologies. Affiliations get a bit, a bit over the top after a while. Lovely to be here, everyone. And, and thanks for having me, Sarah. My name's Zach Seidler. So as this list Suggests I wear a couple of, of hats. Um, my main one at the moment is actually a mustache. I work for, for Movember, um, which is the, the global men's health organisation, and I run their their mental health work. Um, you know, ensuring that we are we are tackling uh, the male suicide issue the world over. It's um, so very la- lucky to work globally with them. I also work uh, as a researcher at, at Origin at the University of Melbourne. I'm also an honorary research fellow at, at Black Dog. Um, So, hence why I'm here in in many ways. And in my spare time, I do clinical work as well to make sure that I'm actually tapping into what's happening on the ground.
1: Yeah, that is important. Yeah, great, Zach. And thank you so much for being here today. Anna Riccadello, would you like to introduce yourself?
3: Yes, thank you, Sarah. Well, look, mine's much shorter than than Zach's. (laughs) Um, I'm a psychologist based in Melbourne um, and currently um, working on the ground as, um, as a private practitioner where I mostly see adults.
1: Terrific. Thank you, Anna. Thanks for joining us today. And Chris, could you share a little bit about yourself with us?
4: Yeah, thanks, Sarah. <clears throat> oh, a little bit of background because of um, the lived experience. Um, I'm a teacher of 42 years, taught both primary, secondary um, boys and co-ed, I'm a coordinator for 25 years, and my last role was head of wellbeing. I retired five years ago, and in that time I've um, just basically spent time looking after myself and doing I love my gardening, love my wine, love my sport, um i've been involved in a, a footy club and a cricket club for. i'm a life member of both so engaging with um both adults and teenagers and one of the funny things is when you are front out in a cricket game and you're playing and you've got a year nine kid in your side that you you is coordinator, but he sort of comes up to you and does high fives with you chris uh, it sort of adds that sort of um personal part of it i've got four adult children and grandkids so it's um pretty full on and I just sort of love the opportunity and uh, Black Dog has given me that opportunity to um, give back in being able to speak with groups like Men's Sheds, um, Rotary, etc.
1: Thanks, Chris. We really appreciate your expertise that you'll share with us today and your story. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. So, um, let's make a start. So, Zach, how common are men's mental health concerns in Australia and which are the most
2: this is a uh, more complex a, a question than you might think, Sarah, um, and so I'll start with the, with the simple statistics, which is to say that um, anxiety is, according to prevalence rates, the most common uh, mental health issue that is experienced by men in Australia. It's about one in five, um, and that goes up to about one in seven or so when it comes to depression, which is the second most prevalent. Nonetheless, uh, my career has kind of really been focused on um, getting to the bottom of the fact that there is this um, this paradox, we call it the gender paradox, between uh, the suicide rates and the prevalence rates of, of mental ill health. So when you start to look at them, you go, oh, okay. So according to these statistics, men are experiencing far less distress in our community than women are. And then you look at the suicide rates and it's 75% male. And when you break that down within Australia, that is seven men a day who take their own lives. And that is, you know, across the globe, a man a minute. So I want to call out from the very outset, a big thank you to Chris and to to everyone here with lived experience or living experience. Um, I'm sure that, uh, you know, I'm not the only one who works in this field because of my lived experience as well. There's often a, a massive overlap here. Um, that, that brings us into this work, but we can't do what we do without those voices. Um, so when it comes to that idea of of the paradox, we start to go, is there actually something that we're missing here? Is there a really a, a silent epidemic, as we say, um, in the field? And, and what's becoming increasingly obvious working clinically is that um, there are a few different Uh, barriers that are stopping men from potentially being diagnosed and and therefore uh, are leading to that um, discrepancy in in results and one of those reasons is is help seeking men are far less likely to seek help um Mm. and and at the moment there's been a really long narrative about the fact that this is men's fault um and Uh, it's a really 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 unhelpful and, and deeply problematic stance and you know in no other field do we say oh you're the patient, you're the problem. Like that just doesn't happen. So we're, we're working towards ameliorating that. And then the second thing is measurement, which is to say um, I've I've worked and my colleague Simon Rice created a scale called the male depression risk scale, which is where if you go in and, you know, anyone who's gone to see a psychologist or a GP or a psychiatrist is going to get an, an everyday measure when they walk in, an assessment to, to see how they're doing. And they'll be given something like the K10 or the DAS21. you know they all kind of look the same, some are a bit longer or shorter. And what we see is that when you give most men these scales, they don't actually know what they're doing when they're scoring it. They go, "That's not me. I don't experience that. What's hopelessness? What are all, what are all of these words? The male depression risk scale, and there are some others in this in this field, actually start to include different expressions of distress being irritability, frustration, anger, violence, substance misuse. When you start to add those in and you give, uh, uh, you know, men and women those those same scales, you actually start to see parity in the experience of depression, anxiety amongst our community. So it's not that it's not happening. It's Mm -hmm. that we're actually not looking in the right places. Mm -hmm. Long Mm -hmm. answer.
1: Mm -hmm. yeah and it's distress being expressed differently yeah
2: yeah Yeah. and there's a lot around a lot around masculinity which we can get into uh, later on that that kind of means that certain behaviors are condoned and others aren't um and you know chris was talking about the sporting world you know roger federer is allowed to cry whenever he wants on the on the tennis you know pitch but but it doesn't really allow it in in any other setting so we're we're working to break that down and allow men more opportunities to to you know reach in and express the the vast diverse experiences that they have. Mm-hmm.
1: Thanks, Zach. So Chris, what kinds of things do you think tend to contribute to mental health concerns and suicidality in men?
4: Oh, there's so many it's a gamut. Um, I'll just pick up on one point that Zach just made then in regards to um, you know Roger Federer being able to cry. If you look at um, different sporting events, um, whether it be a success, whether it be a failure, as in a loss, um, whether it be retirement, I think there's more accepting of that situation, but there is still that um, general sort of look at males and not not showing their emotion because it's just not what you do. But at least it's starting to happen. Uh, and I think that's sort of um, helping with regard to that. Um, the types of issues, um, I just think male pride's one. Jack um, mentioned masculinity. Um, it's the expectations that you have. And I, I look at it in some ways as cultural and the fact that we are a multicultural society. Um, my dad was Irish, the Irish background, um, and he's – sense of the Irish was you had to provide uh, for the family and dad went through um, bouts of depression he was also a teacher Um, and I I tend to think a lot of that was him um, holding in those emotions or holding in those thoughts and being you know being the the stoic male Um, we then look at I suppose through my teaching experience with regard to different um, nationalities Um, you've got your Italians, your Greeks, your um, Lebanese, the, the different countries from within Asia that sort of are here as well. And then the latest group to to be here is the Sudanese. And we look at issues that um, the community are facing with regard to their young um, and creating um, creating issues for themselves and for their community. And yet, like most issues, we know it's, a very small minority of the Sudanese people. Um, so these each, each of the other groups I've mentioned.
1: Thanks, Chris. Zach, what does what does the research say about um, the things that contribute to mental health concerns and suicidality in men? Mm.
2: Yeah, and I, I I agree with Chris that there there is a, a gamut, and I think that it's just to couch this whole conversation in in what we term masculinities, which is that within each man, within each moment there are constantly contradicting and constantly shifting ideas of what a man, what it means to be a man. And so I'll go out and I'll have a beer at the pub with my mates and then come home and watch a Disney movie and cry with my daughter. You know, they, these things can coexist and um, can contradict one another and that should be um, allowed and is important because we are complex beings. Um, so when it comes to the, the predictors, I guess, we often talk about, you know, distress and, and a history of, of depression and anxiety being around performance and being around um, this idea of expectations that Chris was talking about. Um, but what often we see and isn't actually spoken about enough amongst men is that there doesn't have to be um, this ongoing rumination situation, for instance. In fact, what we often find is that situational stresses are the concern for many men, which is that unemployment, relationship breakdown, financial distress, these are tied to these ideas of being a provider and protector. They are directly tied to these stoic, traditional masculine ideals, um, which are very rigid and uh, can be very harmful. And I think that, um, you know, the, the term toxic masculinity is thrown around all the time by the media and is an extremely dangerous term because what it does is it places a blanket You know, ruling over the fact that um, being a man and expressing yourself in these ways is fundamentally harmful. Rather than there is a time and a place for this stuff. There is a time and a place to be stoic. If you're a firefighter and you're running into to a burning building, you can't break down. It's not going to be useful for anybody. But when you come out, we have to find ways to debrief. We have to find ways to express ourselves. And so it's an understanding that these situational stresses that come about can be addressed through seeing someone like anna or myself we don't have to have this idea that you need to be bedridden before uh, you come and see. i don't want to see you when you're at that point that's the hardest time for us to make any any change and in fact what it should be it's that you know i am struggling with this situation i don't have a history of of anything necessarily but there is a spike in 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 my anxiety right now and it's something that i want to deal with so when it comes to suicidality you know relationship breakdown is the one that that jumps to the top in the statistics over and over again the year following relationship breakdown men who are divorced widowed um or single you know have far worse mental health outcomes than than those who are married um and that actually that's inverse in women so that's a whole mother discussion. Wow, goodness, we could do a whole
1: podcast on that. Absolutely. And I suppose often a partner is the person's emotional world often. So that makes sense.
2: That's that's exactly the issue It breaks down. When the relationship breaks down and and many men have not cultivated uh, social connection over time, they do not prioritize friendship. We've done a lot of research and we found that over 40% of guys that we spoke to who are in their 50s and 60s have no one that they can call, no one that they can rely on in tough times. And so loneliness, this loneliness epidemic is, is real. And it's it's something that, that middle-aged men specifically, we're seeing a spike in, in male suicide in middle-aged men, and we're also seeing a spike in isolation and loneliness. They're directly correlated to one another. So we should be considering the fact that your wife or your partner cannot be everything for you. They cannot do all of the emotional labour because if they go you have a vacuum and, you know, they fall back on drugs and alcohol and gambling and all of these pretty dangerous behaviours um, when, in in fact, having a robust social scaffold around you is the thing that's going to keep you alive.
4: i would just add a, um, a little anecdote within that. The idea, um, my mum was the one who sort of pushed this, is that when you're in a relationship, you need time for the relationship for the for the two of you. Um, but you also know, need time individually uh, to spend with other people outside of that. And if you are in a family nucleus and you've got kids, then obviously you need to spend time with, with the kids as a family. But the reason the kids are there is because you as a couple um, are together first. Um, so by being the couple and spending time and doing things is crucial and important, but so is that individual time of doing things for yourself.
1: And fostering connections outside of that too. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Anna, how Mm. does this fit with your experience um, as a therapist? These, yeah, these factors
3: um absolutely um I think um listening to Zach I'd certainly agree um like relationship difficulties and challenges are one of the main presenting stresses that I see when working with males and um I think it's very tied up in identity and and um uh, like you were saying Zach that shifting between um how do I be a dad and then a, a mate and and what that might look like so you know you know, I, I see a lot of issues about navigating identity within a committed relationship or navigate, navigating identity um, when you start a family or all or, or the different changes that might happen in a relationship and most certainly relationship breakdowns are, are quite significant in terms of distress. Um I also work stress and work disf- dissatisfaction is another huge trigger that I see. And once again, I, I feel like you know it, it's tied up in that sense of identity and worth. There are certain societal norms. You know, you've got to be the breadwinner. Win- you've got to have the good job. You've got to move up the up the career ladder, um, and the subsequent pressures. I think that that can can bring a, a quite significant.
1: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Anna. So we know many men don't seek support or can are reluctant to do so or can leave it to the very last um, minute if they do. What are some of the barriers for men to engaging in mental health support? Chris, I'll start with you.
4: For me, male pride stands out. Um, and, again, that can vary from culture to culture. But male, to me, it's inbuilt as far as that pride that I need if I open up or if I share my feelings, um, the second one is avoiding emotions. Um, you know, as I think Zach made reference before, as far as you know, going having a drink and because of my involvement with cricket clubs and footy clubs, you sort of got that um, telling stories, telling yarns, having a laugh, or sort lots of stuff, uh, but not too often people are sharing. Um, issues that they're facing relationship issues or whatever financial issues um, the other one is that society's expectations um, and it can be implied not necessarily um out, outwardly said
1: yeah great thanks chris anna what do you see as
3: reasons that men perhaps don't engage yeah yeah Look, I think there are lots of barriers. Um, some are not necessarily unique to men, such as accessibility of services is a huge issue and, and financial constraints, um, but I, I do wonder if there's a greater stigma um, for men to seek support for, for mental health and well being concerns. And um, I wonder if that, that sort of sits with Chris's experience of pride. Um, um, I also, yeah, I think Chris has touched on this as well. That kind of general viewpoint that maybe um, men have less comfort levels or less language um, to talk about <laughs> mental health um, and and wellbeing concerns. And I'm thinking back to that. That was really interesting. What Zach said that we, you know, the das twenty one which we use so regularly, or the K ten, is that the language isn't picking up the distress. Um, um, I also, I really wonder if our traditional therapy space is not well suited for everyone. Like a traditional therapy space is the chair, the two chairs looking at each other, um, you know, lots of eye contact, telehealth is the same, we're right there with one another, um, you know, there's no movement, there's no nothing like that and I, I wonder if that that can be quite daunting or unappealing for some people. Um, and lastly, I do wonder. We know mental health practitioners are the majority of us are women, um, and I wonder if some men would feel more comfortable um, if they could readily access male support. There might be some particular issues that they'd feel more comfortable talking to to a male support. We know, I know. I regularly have women saying, "No, I want to see a woman psychologist." Um, and I, I wonder for, for males as well if that that's some, a barrier to accessing support.
1: Yeah, interesting point. Zach mm. thanks Anna Zach um what are the barriers for men not engaging what does your research show
2: bang on everyone's everyone's on the money this, <laughs> this, uh, this, there's a there's there's a lot here and and I think that Anna as you said yeah the the notion of of the the therapeutic model itself what therapy looks like how it's been created it is it is largely a feminized model it was created from two misogynistic guys who were trying to treat female hysteria, and it and it kind of just continued. And so, um, you, you know, my clinical practice looks very, very different. I, I play pool, or I play table tennis with with the young guys, especially that I'm that I'm seeing. I've got Rubik's cubes and balls to throw at the wall, and you know, we the chairs don't look directly at each other because, as we know, and we talk about this a lot at November shoulder to shoulder activities are much more um you know male friendly than than face to face in some instances it's really important though that we don't get caught up in in generalizations here because there are plenty of men who are very good at this um and there are some who have great mental health literacy who have the words to describe their emotions you know they often say that they had three sisters growing up for instance and so they, they worked out what was going on but i think that um for, it is for those 15-20% who do struggle that we need to have other options. And Anna, I can speak to the, the idea around um, male and female clinicians. We would love to have more choice, full stop. I think that that is a necessity. The number of male psychologists is actually decreasing year on year, despite there being supposedly a policy push for more of us. Um, I was one of you know, there were 25 in my course and I'm the only guy and and there are serious issues around how, um, you know, men are included in, in the program, but it's also whether or not it's actually promoted as a profession. The caring professions are not suggested to be a male-friendly place. And so what we know from men, though, is that they want the choice. There are certain circumstances where they have you know, male, male-centric male uh, issues that they want to speak about, but largely 60% in our research didn't have a preference, 21% preferred to see a woman and 19% preferred to see a man. Again, there's a lot in there um, around uh, a maternal feeling, especially amongst young men who wanted to, to see a woman and, and the idea around there being... Um, a condoning of emotional expression amongst men and and women in that uh, relationship, whereas it's not necessarily always that easy. There's a lot of posturing when it comes to to -to male-to-male discussions. But the key barriers, I think, are systemic in many ways. We've spoken about money and availability and and all of that, but it's also around the fact that, yeah, the, the system, the way that we advertise, like the vast majority of websites that I've seen in this country, let alone the number of waiting rooms that I've been into. We did a study of fifty psychology waiting rooms, women's health magazines. That's all there is. So a guy comes in, they sit down, and they go, "Oh, well, this isn't for me. I'm out." And think about couples therapy. You come into to a place where you're supposed to be equals, and it's actually it's the same with fathers when they go into maternity wards. They're not welcome, and that that really sets everyone up for failure. I think in many ways. So. We need to start to, whether it's gender neutrality or otherwise, we don't need to reinforce the binary here, but what we do need to do is start to think with men in mind because more and more men are being told to talk, they're being told to be vulnerable, and they're putting up their hands and they're saying, I'm ready to go, and the system and the practitioners are not ready to listen, and I think that yeah. that is a serious concern.
1: Yeah, okay. Thanks. Thanks, Zach. So, Anna, challenges with engaging men in therapy.
3: Yeah, I think in my practice I probably um, see two main challenges and, and Zach, I really take your point on. We're we're kind of speaking in generalisations here, aren't we? But um, I think the initial um, challenge is is sort of that um, getting through the therapy door, so to speak, that initial um, engagement, that initial referral point. Um, In my practice I see far fewer um, men than women. I think it's also really interesting when I when I reflect on my caseload, both current and historically, um, men from LGBTIQA plus communities um, seem to be much more readily, readily um, to engage in, in, in support um, when compared to cis men. Um, I don't know if that's around certain communities having more openness to accessing support. I'm not too sure whether there's research behind that or not. Um I think then the second challenge that I've certainly experienced in in my practice is keeping men engaged in a the therapeutic um, process um and um my sense is that there could be a range of reasons for early disengagement um from whether it's stigma to you know a- attend regular appointments, readiness to change um could could be a, a factor as well um but but I I think um, what you pointed out, Zach, that the, it, it is a very feminised <laughs> process um, and, and, you know, trying to, to, to navigate that and, and reflecting on my own practice in, in terms of ways that, I mean, we do this for every client. We see how can we be flexible to the client's needs and recognise what they they might require from us, and, and that flexibility then becomes really, really important.
1: Yeah, great, Anna. Chris, how can we better engage men in mental health support? Then, what are your ideas?
4: Um, I suppose Go I reflect on the when I was my time as a coordinator at school. Yeah. Um, because even though I'm not a psychologist I still had a number of um, students coming in and so be male and female um, and so it's really just that ability to engage with them to listen to them and I suppose it's sort of that um, we had a, a, a program for for boys it was called um, being a man um, we had a number of different programs and people presenters and that's sort the of stuff we t- by the end we had staff doing it but we had a program um by, um, written by Michael Colling. And it was just made such a difference, the content and having the people running it. Um, and it was just for a group of boys, we're talking anywhere between 10 and 15 boys at the one time. So it's that thing of engaging um, with them. And I also sort of look at, think with my involvement with footy clubs and cricket clubs, because this, there are certain cultures and there's language used, um, incidentally, that that coaches don't are not really aware of. So I think it as far as um, I think it's important to engage within sporting clubs as one area because we're looking at young males. And we know we know that they're influenced by the influences um, on you know, TikTok, Snapchat, whatever, all the different media, social media platforms. So we're already in a sense, community society's up against it with that because kids are impressionable. So I think within the context of school, and it's not just starting in secondary, it's also in primary, so whatever program that people can um, incorporate, use to engage boys as much as possible and young men.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and increase mental health literacy and language around yeah. that. And Yeah, yep. great. Right. Thanks, Chris. So, Zach, your research has shown it's vital that we consider not just masculinity, but different kinds of masculinities in responding to men's mental health concerns and suicidality. How do we break this down in therapy with men? What do we What do we do? How do we How do we do this?
2: Mm. Great question. So, uh, something I prepared earlier. There's the past couple of years I've been working on a on a training program um, called called Men in Mind, which is focused on ensuring that the mental health practitioners and and Chris further down the line as well we are hoping to engage with with teachers and and you know the broader I've had people from Victoria police reach out from Centrelink the places where male distress arises is not typically in the therapy room you know that's that's the the spiky end and I think it's really important to understand the full gamut of of distress and the fact that it It manifests differently, as I said, and also arises in in many different places and spaces. Um, But when it comes to breaking down um, these masculinities and and the the way that this training program that I've created for um, mental health practitioners uh, considers this topic is around the backpack, which is that, you know, Men love, and the research is clear. Whether it's humour or metaphors, you know, there there are many different ways to communicate with men in ways that that engage them. And so we use we use, I use metaphors a lot. And and this idea around a backpack full of bricks, and and this idea that they are carrying around um, really heavy, useless objects with them most of the day, and it and it burdens them. And I think that it's really key to link that idea of of burden to men's mental health, which is that the vast majority of issues that we encounter, whether it's clinically or in the research, are linked back to this idea of burdensomeness. That's a key reason that men don't show up. It's a key reason that they don't continue engaging with therapy, because that idea that their needs are now centralised, that they are paying to look after themselves when they have a family back home where there might be financial difficulties. Um, And and so when it comes to male suicide, what we often find is that there is, you know, I've I've done interviews with plenty of of survivors of of suicide attempts and what we've found is that um, those men who have attempted have felt that their families are better off without them. And so what's required is a really, you know, keen eye a close look at what is um, the way that they are relating with people around them. What are these these ways of of being a man that they believe are central um, to their their success in life in many ways, and how are they actually serving them? Are they supporting their growth, their progress? And and what I always do it's it's this idea of leveraging masculinity to your advantage. You know, central to masculinity is self betterment self-development, self-improvement. It's everywhere. You know, there's the wellness industry for women and then there's the self-improvement industry for for men, which is like get ripped, eat steak all the time, (laughs) take ice baths. You know, the the list goes on and on. Mm -hmm. And so I try to do this thing where we're not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We're going to use what they love. We're going to use a language that makes sense to them, but I'm going to just manipulate it a little for my own advantage here to try to get them to connect with this thing. So take a risk on therapy. It's the greatest risk. You want a challenge? You want to do an ice bath? Trust me, therapy can be more painful. We can find a way.
1: <laughs> so trying to
2: understand that there is that there is that there are ways to break this stuff open and then put it back together and showing them that you've that you've done it before, you've understood it, and most importantly for for people like Anna and I and you Sarah as well, we need to do this as therapists we need to ensure that we are tackling our own gender biases and attitudes and rigid ways of thinking within ourselves, because how can we expect our male clients to do it if it's not something we're willing to engage with?
1: Uh-huh, uh-huh. And I suppose that's to being open and curious when there are perhaps things that are pretty confronting that might come up in the therapy room. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. And the results of this approach?
2: So, we've just wrapped up a, a randomized control trial so for any anyone that doesn't know what that is it's a we we brought in 560 psychologists they got split some of them got the men in mind training it's 8 hours it's online it's it's really focused on on vignettes it's got a lot of videos about how men want to engage and we've we used real lived experience throughout the whole program or some of them went into a control group so it's like a placebo and um what we found is that at 12 weeks follow-up after the training, um, these clinicians had significant increases in confidence and confidence in working with their male clients. And what we also found, we actually did voice recordings and video recordings of the clinicians. It kind of freaked them out where we gave them a male client screaming at them, for instance, because we do a whole module on anger and the fact that anger is something that, you know, many clinicians feel extremely uncomfortable with but many men that's just how they express their emotions there's no violence that is going to come with that you obviously want to be safe in certain circumstances but anger has to be allowed in the room it is an emotion it exists it's real um and so i often talk about this idea that you know um a wife comes home uh, uh, and is you know talking to her husband and asks you know how was your day and he goes oh it was shit and he says you know 15 words or something and then she comes into therapy and i've had so many of these instances and and the wife goes she he never speaks about what's happening for him he never describes his life he's never vulnerable with me and i go what do you want what do you want from him what does vulnerability look like and she goes well i cry once a week for 30 minutes and tell him everything that's going on and pour out my soul I'm like well he just told you how he felt it was shorter sure but He he expressed what was happening and you completely overlooked it. And I think that that's what what happens in society and in therapy. We overlook um, the way that men are expressing their emotions in different ways rather than allowing it. So that is a massive pivot in my answer. But largely the the, the training has been really successful because, um, you know, we've done a review of all of curricula across uh, the country and no one, is integrating gender into their practice. What we do find is that if you look at, you know, any any degree, there's going to be this really, really biased stereotyping which says women experience borderline personality disorder, men experience ADHD, and it's mm-hmm. like, well, that's yeah. helpful. Yeah, Not. So yeah, sure. We need to get to the point where we've got a really nuanced discussion that there are heaps of different men who are going to come in to see you, and if you sit down and expect something from them that is what they will give you when in fact we should be opening up those lines of communication and and the key to creating men in mind was stop assuming and start asking and that's what we need clinicians to do
1: great thanks Zach so Chris there've been times when you've sought support for your mental well-being what was your experience like of this
4: a, I'll put it into um, categories. The fact that first of all, I went through um, went sort marriage counsellor, um, and then the second time was through anxiety when I was sort of uh, mid years of teaching, um, and that was with Catholic Care via school. And then the third one was the severe anxiety depression that I experienced when I my last stint of teaching. Um, to me, as far as gender, it doesn't matter because I've had male and female. Um, also, working with um, a number of uh, psychologists within schools, uh, whether it be a boys' school or the co-ed, um, people are as far as their strengths in being able to be that role of the psychologist. Um, it's just really important, and I, and I see that. Um, I think it's more about the the issue that you're dealing with, and also feeling validated. Um, I think a little bit of what Zach was saying before that. You can come in, it's a psychologist, the tendency to come in who's got a male or a female and also that thing of don't judge a book by its cover. Regardless, sometimes you sort of see, oh, this is what this person is. And so you're sort of forming opinions straight away. Um, and I suppose um, f- with regard to my, my job as a teacher, um, you, you, you're talking and working with male and female. So and when I was talking about that, I'm making reference to the fact that there are problems and issues. So the ability to be able to talk um, to a male or talk to a female about what the issue is, um, whether I'm the um, senior person in the in the relationship due to my role or whether I'm um, a person who's sort of not subservient but working for somebody else to a boss. So I think it's really important that it does should make any difference, whether it's male or a female, but I know it does for some people. Um, I suppose once you're committed to um, to it there's it, it, easy access to it, regardless so you regard, with with online these days, it's not as hard for people to actually access something. Um, as far as with within a work situation, I mentioned before with Catholic care. Uh, we had a situation within the school where any member of the staff or their families could access Catholic care and it's completely independent and private. Um, and then also when I saw my, um, my last situation where I went engaged with a psychologist, that was through my GP. Um, it was pretty... It was, when I look back, it was quite funny because my GP just got up said, so "I'll be back in a minute, Chris." Two minutes later, he's come back. Chris, Charles, Charles, Chris. Okay. <laughs> um, so it was a whirlwind, but I mean, my head was already spinning anyway.
1: Mm. And What I were found, the things? That, yeah.
4: But Take I found on. with Charles, one he he listened to me, um, heard what I was saying, tried to put it in context. Um, he also tried to normalise it that what I was experiencing was what other people have experienced and will experience and that there is a way out and there's a way forward. Um, also having some strategies and then following up with those strategies as a link um, via email. I, I just found that was, I suppose, being the teacher, a you know, little bit of homework. Yes. Um, <laughs> but also when you're in, when you're in session, you're trying to take things in. I mean, I've just been writing notes since I've gone through, which is part of my DNA. But when you're in the session, you don't always take on board. There are certain things or links or whatever else. So having that follow-up email of, of putting that in, in information there, even if it's just dot stop point for the strategies, it helps because it sort of knows that you've been, it's not just that 45 minutes or hour session. The psychologist has thought about you afterwards as well to follow up with that. Um, and I'll just add there one of the things that I I think is important is that psychologists, if people may I mean um, fall through the traps or don't re-engage for a session, that sometimes just by sending them an email um, doesn't have to be anything too elaborate. It's just offering support and saying, we're still here and if you tried this? I hope things are working out. Please reach out if if mm-hmm. we can help at all.
1: Mm-hmm. So that might help that if if men do disengage, just help show that care and show that, yeah, there's that interest yeah. and, yeah, other possibilities maybe, other links or things they could, yeah, continue
4: yeah. with. And it could be part of what you were doing within the session, but even if they, I suppose what I'm getting at is if they don't re-engage and you may have booked in another session or whatever. And as a psychologist, psychiatrist, you feel there is a need that you're at least putting your hand out or you're offering that support. Sometimes there are people who need that. And I just know with you, my role as coordinator, um, you knew you had to catch up with certain kids. Um, They won't come back to see you. So it's trying to find a way of re-engaging and just checking in with them and say, yep, I still care.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Chris. Yeah. So Zach, your research has highlighted a strong need for gender sensitive interventions um, and male centered treatment styles. And there are some compelling findings about what men respond better to in therapy. Can you walk me through some of this research and some of these treatment styles?
2: Definitely. So we've all kind of touched on on a couple of them and an awesome shout out there from chris around you know constant relentless re-engagement that's something that i that's one of my key philosophies um especially as a psych it's very easy when your caseload you know balloons um to to lose sight of those guys who who slip through the cracks and instead trying to find the opportunity to give them a tap on the shoulder and say i'm waiting for you um And I also I throw down the gauntlet every once in a while, and I uh, I've done I've done this thing a few times, which you've got to be very careful, but it works it works very well sometimes. And I've heard a few people um, in various interviews in in the US and UK talk about it as well. Which is um, I've been working with some young guys, and um, I use this metaphor at the start of therapy where I say um, I'm going to be in the passenger seat navigating. I'm going to offer you three or four different avenues that you can go down some of them will be shorter some will be longer uh but you are in the driver's seat and you can decide if you want to reverse you can decide if you want to go down a short uh a short road or a long road and and sometimes you'll plow into a tree and you'll just do that for the sake of it and and um so i say that at the start and then uh come you know session five there'll be plenty of of you know 20 year old guys who will be clearly not giving anything um and so what i say to them um when i've when i've got a good enough relationship and i think that that's really key and i'll get back to that in a second i'll say um you know that that this is this is a really important space is a very important time for you um and i believe that you are capable of, of of doing more here um and if this is not the right time um then you need to tell me because uh there are men knocking at the door, waiting to see me, and this is this is a waste of everyone's time and it's a waste of your money. So either get over this, or we are not And uh, the 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 frankness, um, and and I think that that being being blunt and calling shit out when it when it needs to be called out um, has has worked. And it, and this is a the thing. There are some men, and there are plenty of men who require that type of motivational coaching. And then there are some who require a soft touch. And this is what I meant about the the differences between them. And and that's the nuance of a psychologist, hopefully, to be able to read the room and know the difference. But the first thing to to call out is around those first few sessions, which is um, my research is really focused on the idea of orientation and education, which is that many men come into this environment, it's very foreign to them, and they'll naturally do a lot of nodding and yep, that's good, that's good. And they won't ask that many questions. There's a lot of research to show that men will will ask a third the number of questions as women in any clinical experience. And that's despite the fact that they come out and you do the research with them and they're like, I had none of my needs met. And it's like, okay. And so we talk about male pride. We can talk about whatever we want there as a reasoning for that. But that means that we have to do a lot more work as clinicians. Um, And whenever I talk about psychoeducation, which is those you know, those key components of what are you about to take part in here? Every clinician says, I do that. I do that with everyone. And I say, well, you're going to have to amplify it. You're going to have to turn up the volume because many men require a much longer discussion with them about what is this. Therapy that you're doing. How much is it going to cost me? And how long am I going to be here? And when will I know what progress looks like? And how often do I need to come? And is this witchcraft and wizardry? And you know, it it is. It is. There are so many different things that require a long, a long uh, term engagement around some of those components. What we tend to do, and how we're trained as psychologists, is to uh, jump into assessment. And get out clipboard out. I don't. Here's another, I don't. I haven't used a clipboard in seven years. I don't write any notes during session. I'm here. I am yours. I will give you my attention. Anything. Firstly, I can't read my own writing, so what's the point? And 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 secondly, I'm either gonna gonna be there and I'm gonna engage with you and and I'm gonna remember what you've said more than I am three words that I've written down. Um, and so I think that we need to reduce the angst that many clinicians hold and actually place themselves in the room and go, we don't need to tick the box of how many symptoms they've got. We need to actually realise that you have a very short window of opportunity here to engage with these guys. You may be the first and last person that they are willing to see, you know, before crisis hits. So don't stuff it up. And it's not a pressure. It is an opportunity. It's something to to be said for the fact that there is they are in the door and they may not be fully motivated but they got there and so mold around them give them what is required at first make them feel comfortable don't tick any boxes talk about the footy who cares like it's not there's no necessity to drill into their childhood trauma in the first 60 minutes despite our deep curiosity as clinicians give it up give up control and and go to the guy why are you here? What what do you what do you want from me? What makes you deeply uncomfortable about this? Have you done this before and had a crap time? We need to just spend time getting to know each other as human beings. Because across the five hundred and fifty guys I spoke to last year in this survey, all of them said I was treated like a human being, and they treated you know they expressed themselves not as a robot in a lab coat, but as as someone who was willing to self disclose when it was ne- necessary and was willing to actually connect with them on a human level.
1: Yeah. Yeah, great. Gosh, that's that's um yeah, that's great to reflect on all of those and what we can bring as clinicians. Yeah, excellent. Okay, so based on your research you're advocating for this different way of approaching men's distress um the men in mind training can you tell us a little bit more about this which clinician groups can access it how to um, for those that might be interested in our audience for sure
2: so it is about to be made available to everyone in in australia um we're just wrapping up and, and sending out the results um to uh this this journal but we have a sign up page. Um, which is meninmind.movember.com um, or movember.meninmind.com, and um, it is—I've uh, already seen 11 signups while I've been sitting on this on this call. So good on you, everyone! Please share the love. Um, <laughs> and it's it's self-paced training. It's got 45 videos in, built into it. have got lots of worksheets. It's very reflective. It wants you to consider. You know, I've worked with a lot of trained a lot of female clinicians who have come from a history of Of domestic violence for instance in their lives and their their father was domestically violent and they haven't actually interrogated the fact that when a a young male client gets angry in session they shut down as clinicians and they feel extremely unsafe when if I'm sitting in the room I'm like that doesn't even touch the sides you know that's that that type of anger is I don't see it as threat and so we need to start to understand some of our proclivities and and where this stuff comes from, and then I delve into in, in much greater depth, you know, two three hours worth on on how depression looks different in men, about how to engage with men in that way, about what suicidality stages look like amongst guys, and how to how to connect the dots. So it is you know one hopefully of a suite of different courses that are going to be rolled out because this is a very complex. You know, I was saying yesterday at Movember, it's a very strange place to be when you're considered a specialist. For 50% of the population. Yeah. <laughs> and that's where I that's where I kind of sit, which is like, oh, I'm in this really niche field, but I'm dealing with <laughs> the whole gamut of the way that men the whole age demographic, every yeah. diverse group and in every form of presentation. I'm uh-huh. not a specialist, I'm a generalist.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. So how can practitioners sign up to that? That's on the
2: on the On the website, and I'm now yep. going to look at it to Great. make sure that I get it right. To is you, meninmind.movember.com.
1: Great, thank you so much, Zach. So if I could have a final word from each of you, Zach, what's something you would really like all practitioners to take away about working with men?
2: I think that uh, what I would really love as I said to to stop assuming and start asking, and actually, most importantly, I want clinicians to expect more. I want them to expect more from men because men have a lot more to offer when you open up the idea of what they are capable of. Um, And so starting to expect more and um, offering that same idea of potential to the men themselves, rather than saying, oh, you're a guy, it's highly unlikely you're going to be able to express your emotions. So let's just talk about this for now. You know, let's, let's offer them the ingredients and they'll bake the cake.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh, mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Brilliant. Thanks, Zach. Um, Anna, what are your top tips for working with men?
3: Um, I think it's I mentioned earlier, be flexible. Um, I I, you know, really quickly, I remember early on in my work um, when a male client told me straight away, I'm here for three sessions, give me some strategies. And that completely changed the way that I worked, um, and I think it taps into that, you know, the the don't assume, ask, you know, what was what was this individual's expectation of how therapy looked, um, and you know that enabled me not to not to get out the clipboard and do the assessment and, and the background. I, we went straight into the work, um, and that's that's. I'm now really mindful not just working with men like like I was like to say you know it's got to be nuanced it's about collaborating collaborating my style of therapy to suit the individual's needs um and so for for me it's that flexibility um it's it's from the outset, going what are, what are you, what's what is it that you want asking, <laughs> um, and then mediating. And I, I think I'm going to steal. You, um, was it the the navigator seat, Zach? Um, <laughs> I, I think I'm going to steal that analogy of you know, okay, you might want three sessions, but there might also be a longer road as well. But. Are you ready for it or not? And I think I'm going to steal that analogy. Thanks, Zach. It's a beautiful analogy, so I
1: love it too. Really powerful. (laughs) Thank you, Anna. And Chris, the final word to you, what would be your top tips for mental health professionals for how they can best work with men?
4: I think it's sort of been summed up a little bit with what Zach and Anna have said and also mentioned it before, it's simply listen to them, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. being non-judgmental and make them feel normal. Uh, the uh-huh. fact of whatever feelings and issues that they've got, um, they're not the first person, and they won't be the last people to experience it.
1: Yeah, so it's trying
4: yeah. To, it's trying to normalize it. Yeah. But also working on on actually listening to what they're saying.
1: Yeah, yeah. And taking away that stigma by normalizing, because often, yeah, situational things happen to all of us. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. It's, I've, I've, gosh, I could ask you another hour's worth of questions. Um, Thank you very much for your time, everyone. So any further questions, please, um, you can contact us. Thank you very much for coming today. And the hugest thank you to you, Zach, Anna and Chris. Um, I've so enjoyed hearing your responses today. And thank you very, very much for sharing your expertise and um, time with us as well. Thank you, everyone. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today. See you, everyone. Take good care. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, Subscribe to and review Black Dog Institute on iTunes or your preferred podcasting platform. If you're interested in knowing more about our educational programs and research, please visit our website at blackdoginstitute.org.au.